Hi, I'm Fran Whitlock and this is Community, a podcast about eco-villages from Gen Europe, the European Eco-Village Network. The idea behind this podcast is to tackle your big questions about eco-village living, love, money, conflict, technology, but also to explore the personal stories and experiences of some of the people most immersed in the eco-village movement. And today's episode is about experiences, specifically the experiences of someone who spent almost two decades living in one of Europe's major eco-villages communities, Tamara in Portugal. You may notice we talked to quite a few people from Tamara on the podcast. Not only is it full of fascinating people, they're also pretty good at answering their emails. Quite apart from her years-long experience in eco-villages, Ida Shibley is an extraordinary person. She grew up in Palestine at the time of the Second Intifada. As a nurse, she treated soldiers and suicide bombers. And as a peace activist, she's involved in supporting the development of eco-village communities in Palestine. Over the course of our conversation, we talked about identity, motherhood, love and power, and the role of eco-villages in peacebuilding. As we talk, what strikes me most is that despite, or perhaps because of, her experiences of violence and conflict, she has an unwavering belief in love as a driving force for change, an immense capacity for love and grace, and a firm belief in the healing power of community. So today on the podcast, we have as our guest, Ida Shibley. I'm really happy to welcome you. Thanks for joining us. So today there's a lot I want to talk about. There's a lot to ask you and a lot to hear about. But I always want to start with the question um, of how people discovered the world of eco-villages. Do you remember the first time you heard about the concept? Wow, <laughs> yes, <laughs> for sure. And uh, I can say that in my case, uh, before hearing the expression of uh, eco-village, I heard the expression of intentional community. Aida tells me she's from Palestine, and that when people were describing to her what an eco-village is, she said it sounded familiar, like living in the tribe, living in a way that's more sustainable and regenerative. She says she first encountered the concept almost 20 years ago, when she was pregnant in a war zone, bombs exploding around her. To me, as a mother, as a woman who was just left by uh, her husband, um, and staying alone, I was very much very busy with the question, what would be the life that I will give to this um, child that is in my womb that will be significantly different from my own life, a life that does not repeat the pain and the traumas that I am going through. I asked her about the path from this experience as a pregnant woman in Palestine to living in her chosen community, Tamara, in Portugal. I'm always interested in whether the barriers were psychological as much as they were practical. Maybe I start from the physical level, because I said also that um, I came from indigenous tribe uh, groups of Palestine, and we lived as a community, but for sure also for me as a feminist, I could understand that this was a typical patriarchal tribe that uh, the women, the young, the ones who are not in the high uh, pyramid were, were not um, benefiting from the system. So the structure was almost the same, but for sure not the same. So in the physical level, 
um, coming to um, and living in a community was going back to the essence of a tribe, the essence of coming together, which is being equal, being in a circle that everybody is equal and everybody has the same right of voice and the same value and respect no matter what you are doing. And staying on the physical conditions, um, for sure it was for me a big jump coming from uh, Palestine to um, Europe. And but not only Europe in a community that it's I would say a hundred years of light ahead of time. So practicing different kind of um, ways of living, although it's ancient by its essence, but um, the way it appears, it is different. And so uh, as a person who lived also in the city, I was trained as many of us to reach material uh, satisfaction, very strong individual materialism, and to make the jump and come to a rural, um, isolated village in one of the most uh, not inhabited regions of, uh, of Europe, in the Alentejo, and then to find people living in um, simplicity. Uh, that was um, for the first times that I visited. It was shocking. It was a change. It was a big. Um, if I wouldn't be convinced of the, of the vision of the political vision that is behind the community, um, the body and the mind that was so much trained for materialism and comfort was not comfortable. It was really not comfortable, and the mental shift. Um, I came from a political round of activism and nonviolent resistance in Palestine and a feminist and a leader. And, but still to find out that uh, a lot of the patterns that we use to live outside uh, being an ind individual, being uh, even when we work with a team or with a group, we work from power structures. We don't work as one of the circle. We do not seek the coherent agreement of a circle because we are trained to be powerful and to drag the, the, the others behind us um, due to a strong personality, charisma, and so we call the people. But living in a community, one needs to come back to the essence of being human among humans, being one among the the circle and the circle is equal <laughs> everywhere in the circle it's a center and this is new in it for people who are trained in the outside mindset mm. it's interesting what you say there because something quite central to intentional community and to eco village is this idea of the circle and equality or equivalence of voices but as you also mentioned, we also bring our baggage from outside. We bring our sexism, our racism, our hierarchies. And sometimes I think there's this idea that, oh, in eco-villages, these problems don't exist. And sometimes even inside communities, there's this idea that we don't have to deal with these problems because we're all equal. Have you witnessed that? How have you seen people actively try to work on that? It's a very important question because it hits one of the main uh, themes that divide groups, the whole issue of power structures and decision taking. And these are um, patterns that we uh, often hide them. We often manage them from our private sphere. We do not speak about them in public. We have our ways of thinking and we decide. 
and to tackle power structures in a community is something of the most exciting things because at least here in, in Tamera, we, we are um, a research center and we are a community of trust and community that encourage transparency. And so this doesn't mean that we do not have these issues here. We do have them big time, but the, the beauty is that we can address them in a public sphere in what we call the forum, and we can call people to these issues. And when we say we are a product of a society of war uh, that have been running now for 5,000 years or 7,000 years, and these patterns have been chiseled in our cells and how in our DNA, how do we behave? There is the vision that we are all equal and we are all sitting in a circle and have equivalent voices. This is the vision, I would say. It doesn't mean that we are already at the vision, but at least we do not try to pretend that we are at the vision when we are not. And this is the beauty of truth, because truth, you say, it's a negotiation between many gods <laughs> and you have to negotiate between many aspects of us. Also myself, like to um, understand that when I arrived to the community, I, I really thought of myself a peace worker. I, I really thought that I'm enlightened and I'm a, a loving human being and slowly to understand how much growing in a war zone and surviving so many wars, I um, integrated violence in, into my cells without knowing that, without understanding that the pattern of uh, uh, knocking somebody with a clever sentence because I have more knowledge is a fighting method. And it, in the energy scale, makes no difference between this and a sold, Israeli soldier shooting. Makes no difference. It's, it's the energy-wise, how the universe, how Mother Earth... Uh, how the nanosphere understand us, it's the same energy because it comes from this place of separation, this place of I'm an individual and nobody is loving me. And so it is the same. Find these patterns of power uh, dynamic that are in the community and point them is very important. And in Tamara, we are doing really well, not well enough. I, I would say that there is still a lot to do and to, to go ahead. We are also dealing in the last two, three years, uh, intercultural issues and it's popping and it's beautiful because um, we already created a carpet of trust among us. We restored the trust between us. And this is the most important thing because you can intellectually and in a very beautiful setting address issues. But if you did not restore trust among the people who are going to participate in that dialogue it means nothing in the end thank you now you i remember from your email you sent me you sort of identified as a, a queer palestinian activist and a mother so it's a lot of identities or a sort of a lot of intersecting identities and some that in sort of mainstream western society are not always entirely welcomed or entirely embraced how has living in community helped those identities are welcomed and assimilated or that there are still barriers to understanding to acceptance mm -hmm. how does it feel mm -hmm. 
um, as I come from the Fertile Crescent, you call it the Middle East, I call it the Fertile Crescent. <laughs> um, we are storytellers. We, uh, we don't answer questions um, head to the point. <laughs> and I live among Germans who do not uh, like to go around the point. They want, to, to want you to get to the point. <laughs> so I will go around the point a little bit. So um, as you now mentioned to some of my identities as uh, growing up and finding that most of my identities were not welcome to be born in a as a girl as a female in a society that adores boys to be born as an indigenous in a society that want to run to modernism to be born as palestinian in a society that is under israeli occupation to be born as a muslim in times of islamophobia all my identities were not welcome so i learned with the time that my antidote for all this not welcoming is to expand my sacred hospitality to the world is to expand my love and my grace and my acceptance to what's going on and by this i uh, not only uh, bring my identities into into the center, but I actually make them welcomed. For sure, not with the whole world, but at least with that section of the world that I'm coming in contact with. Because the main thing, the main chariot that will bring us forward is is love, is is grace. To say that all my identities are welcomed here in in my community, I would say definitely yes. And I'm not sure that when I say definitely yes, that all the community or every member of the community is aware of all the intersectionality that goes through all my identities. But there is a basic loving and welcoming to my being living in a community. And now I live here for 15 years and I know the project for 18 years and started knowing that the whole thing from 20 years ago that um, the more intimacy goes with the people, with the co-workers, the more one can open in a more fine way. What does it mean, all these identities? What does it mean, all this intersectionality that is going around my life story? We used to have a, a poet, Mahmoud Darwish, who uh, was a symbol for the Palestinian resistance, and he said, Let's arrive to a place, to a day that your identities are like a clothes. Your, um, your clothes, you put them today, you put this one, tomorrow you put this one. You change them and you use them, but don't allow them to use you. You are not your identities. You are a divine being and don't allow the identity to, to use you. So this is what I'm, um, I'm always trying to remember and remind others that before being indigenous, Muslim, Palestinian, women, mother, a queer, before all these identities, I am a cosmic being. I am a divine spark. I am a daughter of Mother Earth. And uh, these, are the, the, these are the primal identities. And that brings me immediately, I am a universal global being. And the other identities, I play with them when it's needed but I don't make them a barrier between me and others. And when I am in situations where I see that my identity um, is a barrier for somebody else to reach out to me, these are moments that are challenging. And uh, it depends if I'm in a graceful day, I, I could expand and expand and include. And sometimes I just know 
that um, in this situation, I better leave. I leave with love. And I don't speak now about community members, but I travel a lot and I meet people who cannot yet grasp another being who is holding all these identities like I do. So in these situations, I leave. I live with love and with grace. Thank you. And I'd like to talk a bit more about your activism. Because um, you, even before you were in Tamara, you were an activist. And um, Tamara has quite a strong activist component. I've spoken to Dara Silverman for another episode of this podcast about the healing of love. Um, can you tell me a bit about your path as an activist and perhaps how it's changed or transformed um, through your path in community? Mm. Indeed, as you said, um, we link very much the inner work that we do here in the community with the global transformation that is needed. And so for us, there is no meaning of focusing on the individual, on the self, on the I, without linking it to the world. That's why we do this work. And from this place of looking into the inner patterns that lead to war, we try to detect these patterns within us, among us. And this is already activism to see what patterns we, we carry from the society of war. My uh, concrete part was and still um, as a bridge to the Fertile Crescent. So I reach out to communities in Arab countries, in uh, other countries in the Fertile Crescent, and I try to um, uh, create spaces of exchange between local communities and global players, including Tamara. And one specific um, a concrete example is that me, uh, together with other partners in, in Palestine, we try to uh, encourage our people to stay with their indigenous ways of living a sustainable, regenerative lifestyle and bringing the political component to it. Meaning, we are in Palestine a farmer community that uh, in the times under the Israeli occupation, uh, people start thinking that maybe um, it's better to leave the land and go and work in Israel, go work for a small job in Israel, and you would earn more than you are getting the, from the land. And by this, we become even more dependent on, on Israel, and the land is neglected. So we shot ourselves double time. And so what we try to promote is this nonviolent resistance by not having an enemy, an outer side enemy, saying we do this because of israel no we do this for us for life for earth to take care of earth to grow our food to harvest our water to harvest the energy around us to create as a resilient society these are not because we are under the occupation but despite we are under the occupation we have to do it because it's for us it, it's empowering and more and more young people are joining this uh this trend of creating more and more projects and villages and farms about organic uh, growing food about sustainable lifestyle about strengthening the community and three years ago, we uh, together with Jen, we established or made it possible that the first eco village in Palestine was, uh, yeah, was born. And this is uh, thanks to our work, to the work that the people, the local people, are doing. And we are continuing to support more and more villages to become part of this global uh, network. She's talking about Farha, a traditional village that became the first eco village in Palestine. 
It held the country's first eco-village design education course, and its demonstration site includes a combination of traditional fieldstone terracing and swales for rainwater retention, mixed culture permaculture, a composting toilet, and even a small biogas digester. Listening to Ida makes me reflect on what we mean when we say intention, when we talk about intentional community. For many people living conventionally comfortable lives in Western industrialised societies, it's a conscious choice to step out of the rat race and live more simply in the countryside. But what about when you're living in conditions of conflict and scarcity? I can say that in Tamira we are leading what is called global campus, and this is creating what I just explained about um, spaces of exchange in more places of war zones. So it's not only Palestine, Kenya, uh, Mexico, Colombia, Brazil. And then what I noticed that actually because these people do not have the comfort that the Western people have, and this choice, maybe yes, maybe no, they are actually starving and more hungry for this information that we bring, and they are more motivated to create projects like this. Because so the, this what to say that what stands between us and the better world that we want to live in is comfort. When we are comfortable, we we don't want to give up our privilege, and these people do not have this privilege, so. When you show them um, a way that they can live coherent with life, with nature and sustainable and live in dignity, they are the first ones to take it much um, earlier and faster than Western societies. These people are confronted on daily basis with death, with end of everything. And then when you link it with political activism and you, um, you, you, you scale it up and you say, wow, imagine that we can create such projects and eco-villages all around the skin of Mother Earth. And all these places are sustainable and they remodel abundance, like this experience of abundance. This by itself will decrease war because one of the how the system is getting us is saying that the, the resources are limited and you better be fast and grab grab we are a culture of grabbing also sexually also in every we are a culture a suicide culture and grabbing culture and when you allow people to go experience of abundance where they leave the system of scarcity it has a uh, uh, political significance because it's it's amazing. It's um, I when I came to Tamira, we didn't have these uh, water retention spaces, what we call the lakes now. So we used to walk in, in a very dusty road. And in 2007, when uh, the lake was uh, digged, the first one, and uh, immediately after one season, two seasons, it was filled with water in the middle of of a semi desert like the Alentejo. And slowly, um, trees were growing around and fruit and vegetables. I myself, myself went through an experience of turning scarcity into abundance. She's talking about Tamara's legendary water retention landscapes. If you search online for the before and after images, you'll be amazed at the transformation that's been achieved in a few years. And I can say that um, if people would have enough, they won't be motivated to, to, to hurt and to take what doesn't belong to them.
But what does it mean enough, enough for our needs, not enough for our greed, that this is what Gandhi said, that the Mother Earth has enough for all of our needs and not of our greed. And in community, you can address the greedy patterns of that that were implemented in, in us, were put in us, and to uh, reflect back to a person who's saying, um, yeah, why do you need this next uh, second jacket? <laughs> uh, like we have this phenomenon of the of the second jacket. Why do you need so many shoes? Why do you, why? And it's beyond the clothes. About being greedy and greedy in love, uh, wanting to own, wanting to have, the wanting, the wanting. This you can address it in a community of trust. I just want to go into maybe one final sort of aspect of your experience and one of your identities, I suppose. So you raised a child in Tamara, right? Your daughter? Yeah. And that's something that people often ask us about as well. They say, you know, maybe I want to have a family or I have young children. How will it be? What will my experience be like? And of course... You never know. It's different for everyone. But can you talk a bit about what the experience of raising a child in Tamara has been like? It started so difficult (laughs) that I have to admit that when uh, I arrived to Tamara, and uh, as I said, I was a single mother uh, having one child and somehow feeling that this child would be the only child that I will have. And that was confirmed also later. I have, she's the only child that I have. So in a way, um, unconsciously, I created with her a love story. Like we had a really very strong bonding and a very strong connection. And when people started mirroring, here we say mirroring by giving feedback to my behavior as a mother toward my daughter, In the beginning, I was very offended because who are you to interfere of the way I educate my daughter? And it was not easy. It was not easy to allow people to see the patterns that uh, that were between us. And the the more I embedded myself in the vision and understood the vision, and understood why actually um, the, the, the pain that we carry, how we give it to the next generation by trying to protect that pain and keep it between us. And this is how we pass that pain to them. And so what I inherited from my mother, unconsciously I was giving it to my daughter. And when people start telling me that if I... When I treat my daughter like this, when I do this, this is what she will carry from me. Then, so this is a very, very um, sensitive question to say it also to people who, who are outside and so convinced that there is a point of saying our children. Our children, as Jubran Khalil Jubran says, your children are not your children. They are children of life. And you have been in custody for them to... to raise them for life but in the system of um, capitalism we say our children my children my beloved and so there is this ownership and then to allow others to (laughs) to partner with you in growing that child throughout our conversation i'm impressed by ida's spark her determined belief in love 
despite an awareness of the deep and painful challenges we face as a society. What is it, I wonder, that keeps her hopeful? Yeah, <laughs> great. Oh my God. Uh, when I was marching in the streets of Jerusalem and uh, Ramallah, uh, between the two intifadas and after the second intifada, I met a, a very strong woman it was around me being so in despair. And she said, Aida, when you are born as a Palestinian woman, you don't have the privilege of losing hope. You don't have, it's a privilege. To lose hope is a privilege. I don't want that privilege because I feel that when we lo lose hope, um, every lost hope is food for fascism. Every lost hope is food for that system that wants us to be enemies. And I survived many wars. I survived a lot of pain that was inflicted on me. And yet I force myself and I train myself with thoughts, with prayer, with connection to that sacred um, life that exists, to that other reality that exists. And I call the hope from there because I, uh, I feel it's a duty to hold on to hope it's not this wishful thinking, but it's a realistic hope that comes from knowledge that um, even though we, we see things in decay and we see things that are falling apart and catastrophe, but beyond that, beyond that veil, there is some, something in life that it's so loving and so wanting us to uh, come to our next step of evolution. And to that loving life, to that loving energy, we have to connect. And we connect when we have hope. And uh, uh, people that I love, Axel Havel from the Czech Republic, he said that um, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but it's the certainty that something makes sense no matter how it turns out. And so we have to hold on on this hope and to continue doing it. And if it's not us, then who? If it's not those who actually know what does it mean war, who know what does it mean losing a beloved one? If it would not be us who know what does it mean, then who, who will hold it? And maybe I'll also finish with what Arundhati Roy from India, a great activist, says that uh, another world is not only possible. She's on her way. On a quiet day, I hear her breathing. So it um, takes also a discipline to be quiet and to listen to the revolution that is coming and to be part of it. In every in every moment of our day, we have the choice to join that positive revolution or be of an audience and lean back and lose hope. So I choose life. Choose life, build trust, and listen to the revolution. It's as good advice for life as I've ever heard. If you're interested in learning more about Ida's activism and work with communities in Palestine, check her out online. You'll find dozens of videos and articles where she talks in more detail about her activism and the politics of love. If you've enjoyed the podcast, let us know what you think and what you'd like to hear from us. To find out more about eco-villages, subscribe to our newsletter at geneurope.org and check us out on social media. And finally, big thanks to Jorge Alonso for editing the podcast. <laughs>